So just uh, what do you guys do at Aid Marketing? I, I, I've been through your website. You do a lot of different marketing. Uh, so we started out five years ago, digital marketing company in the United States. Yeah. Uh, we were doing websites, Google, SEO. That was like our niche. And we did it in one specific industry, the plumbing industry in the United States. Right. And in that world, it's different than like a Dubai. Most people live in a home. It's more suburban. So if you have a plumbing problem... You're going to Google and find a plumber. The plumber's going to come fix it. So my niche business was I got those guys to the top of Google. I ran that as a solopreneur pretty much. Mm. What I did is um, I had a background in the plumbing and HVAC industry and sales, marketing, business development. Started a digital marketing company focused on those companies. And the U.S. market is a little bit different than Dubai where you can have... You want to check your thing? Yeah, no, go ahead, man. Um, Keep going. It's all good. I'm just going to adjust the In the United States, you can have... 20 different plumbing companies in 20 different cities and no one's going to care that you're working with competitors because they're not really competitors. A plumbing company in Dallas is not really competing with a company in Tampa. So you can be kind of more niche in yes. a sense. Yeah, I got um, And that was the industry that I knew the most about. And I outsourced the SEO to a group in India. They did all the white label stuff and it looked like I was like a full-fledged marketing agency mm -hmm. to most companies. But I just ran the pay-per-click campaigns did the SEO, and then I had web designers in, in, in India if I needed it. So I ran that for like two years as just like a solopreneur. I just did it myself on a laptop and a cell phone. And then um, I had a choice to either turn it into a full-fledged agency in downtown San Diego, or I could travel. And I just decided I wanted to travel the world and live like a nomad for a little bit. I was kind of bored with America. I was 33 years old. I just broken up with my girlfriend, was just kind of looking for something different. So I started traveling to Europe um, and ended up getting into Forex and cryptocurrency marketing, right? There was a big push about a year and a half ago, two years ago, where Bitcoin took off. Yeah. And I was the digital marketing guy that figured out how to generate leads for these trading platforms really well. Yeah. And I actually was doing what they call CPA, which is cost per acquisition. So I get paid every, some, every time someone deposits, right? But the secret that I figured out was it was the data. So what happens when you're on doing CPA, you're an affiliate marketer, right? So you run a campaign, let's say, for your business, and there's five other businesses exactly like yours, yeah. and you all want the same type of leads. I use my funnels. I use my creatives. I use my landing pages. They're generic, right? You sign up. I own that data now. I send it to you, and if you get me a sale, I get paid. If you don't get me a sale, I can send it to five other companies now. And so I started making a lot of money with this. Like, it started turning over really quickly for me. Um, and I was still running it kind of from a laptop and a cell phone. And then I finally started like to build staff and team and like develop an office around it. Um, and did really well there. And was I got hit with a huge VAT tax um, in Europe that I didn't really understand the tax system. Um, and so I came to Dubai to avoid tax. <laughs> That's my original reason to come to Dubai. I was like, man, I need to find somewhere that don't require tax because my clients were all over the world. So it didn't matter. I didn't have to be in a specific country to get paid, you know? True. I was digital. I was, I was working for brokers all over the world. So yeah. it didn't really matter where I was at. So I yeah. came to Dubai, set up a free zone company. And while I was coming here, I was like, man, there's so much opportunity. And I could tell that the digital marketing space was slightly behind where I was at that moment. And I felt like there was enough room 
to kind of get a running start and actually get out in front of the market, you know? Um, so I came here, but nobody was buying Google, pay-per-click, SEO, affiliate marketing. None of that was working here. Only people wanted to talk about Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, YouTube. Yeah. Those were, every time I met with someone, they're like, what do you do for Instagram? And I was not really a content person. I was a digital marketing nerd that just knew that space really well and, and, and made good money at it. Um, and so then I started becoming like an Instagram person and started posting and started figuring out strategies and how to build a personal brand. Um, and then I started making videos and then like I just kind of like over the last of like 14 to 16 months became kind of a content creator. Um, and then I created the show in the window to Dubai. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say that in the content space, you're, you're one of three things. You're, you're either a content creator, a service or a product, or you're a platform. And the window to Dubai kind of brought all three things in one for me, right? I was creating content. I was creating a platform because I was letting other people tell their story. And I ultimately was selling a product or a service, even though the people that were coming to the show didn't know that it was ultimately going to pitch them, (laughs) that I can create content for them. Um, And and so it ended up being that all of my clients have come from the window to Dubai, or they have client people that I met referred me. So the window to Dubai has really been a huge lead gen gen for me. I didn't expect it to be that. What I was hoping that window to Dubai was going to be, it was going to be my like Gary Vee moments where I meet with someone and talk about sales, marketing, business development, and I make my pitch and we capture it and it's a really good video, but it doesn't look like I tried to do it. And it ended up being completely opposite. It ended up being me having to learn to shut up, interview people and try to help tell their story. But it helped me in becoming a content creator for other people. Because then I started to understand that once I understand their story, their background, where they're at and where they're trying to go, I became better at creating content for other people. So the window to Dubai just kind of did all mesh together perfectly for me and just kind of created where we're at. So it's kind of the evolution. So we kind of done all of it just organically in different moments. Um, so it's just kind of like been the evolution over like five years to get to where we're at. Yeah. So right now your focus as, uh, as the agency is more about being uh, like a content creator for other businesses. Yeah, I think what, we, what, we're, what we're seeing ourselves as right now in the market is there's a space where there's a bunch of big PR companies that do digital, but they don't really do digital. And then there's a bunch of smaller, I would say, digital marketing agencies, right? That if you tell them to run X campaign, they can run X campaign. Well, I think we feel our lane has been, has been the strategy side of things. Anybody can post on Instagram. Anybody can do hashtags not like we're doing something unique what we're doing differently is we physically create the content for them but we also give them the strategy the concepts the ideas the direction and then we execute it and so i feel like there's not a bunch of people doing that and so i feel like that's where we've kind of we've become more the strategic social media partner content creation is a component of it because usually what happens is social media companies don't create content photographers videographers don't do social so someone has to come in and manage that for them. And for our price points, we're able to manage it, pull that together, and then also be the strategy guy that sits down. And then because of our background as a digital marketing company, we can run paid ads, we can yeah. do Google. So we kind of have an extra lever in a meeting where now we're doing both at the same time for them. Yeah. Let's, I, mean, I want to dig into your, your start off. You told me that when you were doing the SEO for plumbing, 
you were the guy basically just running the PPC and then you had already outsourced uh, some of the work to uh, people in India, so creative, yeah. web design, um, SEO. So it seems like from my perspective that you already had you know, the idea in your head that, okay, in order to make this work, I need to delegate some stuff. Uh, so could you tell me a little bit more about that? Really what it was for me is I ran pay-per-click campaigns, but I just couldn't charge enough. You know, somebody would pay me $500 a month to manage their pay-per-click campaign, but now you need 10 clients to make 5,000. 5,000 US in downtown San Diego is not a great not living. Much, yeah. So I looked at it as a value add, um, and I'm not technical enough to do it. The website thing, I only did it because uh, when somebody needed a website, the last thing you want them to do is go talk to a digital marketing company. Because then they're going to say, well, this guy's not doing this, this guy's not doing that. So it was more just to hone in the client and keep them in my sphere. It wasn't necessarily of thinking I need to delegate it. It was more of just trying to add value and increase my ticket average and make sure that I was the Google website guy. So anything that had to do with this thing, they had to come to me because I already had their trust. I was already getting them results. So it was more of that. It wasn't the focus of I need to delegate. It was more of, okay, I'm at $500 a month. How do I get to $1,500 a month? And the SEO component became, there's more to sell, right? Because when you set up a pay-per-click campaign, it's pretty much like you set it up, you check it once a week, twice a week. There's not a lot of maintenance, right? But on SEO, there's more of a day-to-day maintenance. There's there's the backlinking, there's the content, there's the on-page, there's the off-page, there's this, there's this. There's so many things that you can show that are being done. Yeah. Suddenly, there's a monthly retainer that makes sense to be more expensive. Yeah. So that was more of what I was going for at the time. I was more focused on how do I go from 500 to 1500 within the same clients and not have to go get new clients. And that's what I did. I started adding that on. And then organically, people just started asking me for websites naturally because... I was the website guy. They don't, they don't know the difference between Google, pay-per-click, SEO. They just know you do the online stuff. So I just kind of had to figure it out. Yeah. So I think you hit on a, an important point there. So one of the ways that you'll graduate from solopreneur to entrepreneur, I'm assuming, is that you move up the value chain. So if you want to make more money, it's just a, a function of you providing more value to the client. Okay? Yeah. And as you provide more value to the client, you're able to charge more, you're able to have more impact, you're able to get more clients. So I think that uh, it's not just a matter of delegating, it's a matter of, okay, how much impact, how much value do I want to create for the client, right? Yeah. So talk a little bit about about that, you know, um, how did you sort of, uh, what was, you know, the thought process? Was it just a matter of, I need to, you know, up my retainer rate or... Uh, did you see a gap in the market that you could fill because you're already handling PPC and yeah well most of them weren't doing SEO so it was easy sell because most of them weren't right most of the guys had an in-house guy who did pay-per-click and my unique experience in spending 10 to 15 years of working in that industry I understood how marketing companies the marketing division was being ran in that company so I was able to understand that SEO wasn't being done, websites were old. So it was just, you know, part of it also, just to give you a small background on me, is I started working when I was like 10 years old. So by the time I became an entrepreneur, I had been working for 
22 years, you know? So it's not like the natural understanding of how to gradually take the next steps were already there because I had so much real life experience. In my 20s, I took a company from 5 million to 32 million as the business development sales marketing guy. I took a company from 2.4 to 7.2. I just was afraid to start my own thing. But once I got going and I got over the fear of cash flow, that was my biggest thing that held me back, like the fear of just not making enough. Um, the, the natural skill set of like knowing what to do next kind of was already there to be totally honest um, but yeah what you're saying about the value component to it is there's, there's a couple sides to it there's, there's yeah you want to add value but you also want to make sure that your clients are not meeting with other people so part of it is like you know this is why PR companies do digital even though they don't do digital because they don't want you to go talk to another digital marketing company and be like, well, why do you even need PR? I can get you more leads and you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on PR that's waste. You know, it's a, you're spending tons of money to get your name in an article when I can run a social media ad for you and actually get you leads tomorrow. So they don't want you to have that conversation. So they, they do that. And that's a common business practice, I think. And I think I was thinking along those lines of how do I make sure that this client never talks to another digital marketing company other than me? Because I know as soon as a client came to me, I would just find the five things that that digital marketing company is missing and I would just focus on those things. And be like, he's not doing this, he's not doing this, he's not doing this, you should work with me because I know how to do those things. So it's part of it's me knowing like, I want to keep them in my little sphere, you know? Yeah. Well, by the way, for the viewers, you don't need PR, okay? <laughs> you don't need PR. <laughs> They're overcharging you for no results. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I wish, I wish, yeah, I wish that we could have like a whole seminar on just how you don't need PR in Dubai. Because I mean, even <laughs> PR today is digital, right? It's relationships on Twitter, it's on Facebook, it's like th this kind of stuff, and that's how you get press, right? It's not you like paying some crazy people like a hundred thousand retainer a month, and they get you like you no know, five. The only articles. thing that I see. PR companies for large multinational corporations when there is a fire or there's negative press, how to react, what to do, what not to do. That, that's a value that I think, but when it comes to using PR as marketing, no, I think it's, it's, you know, even if you look at just the social, the whole content creator conference, the social influencing thing, most of the big brands working with a PR company and they do digital. And they turn around and they just send free stuff to people. There's no strategy, there's no tracking, there's no affiliate link that says this guy actually gets you traffic or doesn't get you. There's no organization, it's just free stuff being sent out. They say, look, we got you exposure. This guy has 70,000 followers, probably half of it's fake. But in their mind, they did their job when they don't understand that you can actually put together a real digital marketing strategy using social influencers where on Monday, one guy posts, on Tuesday, another guy posts, and you control that and you create the content so you make sure it's only quality stuff. And it's part of the reason why we want to have the conference because we feel like that's being missed in the market from the brand side and from the influencer side. Um, and we think that the old model of PR agencies managing that is broken. And companies that actually create content and actually specialize in digital marketing and social media should really be the ones handling that. So we're hoping to kind of change that in the market, but we'll see. It's, it's been here a long time, so it's going to take time. Yeah, I think, uh, so you've, you've organized these, this sort of uh, content creators conference. And I, just from talking to you and looking at the, the agenda, I feel like it's it, you're trying to deliver a particular 
uh, kind of philosophy about digital marketing, about you know content creation. So, what is what is your philosophy uh, on content marketing or you know modern digital marketing in the situation where you're posting on social media and things like that? I mean, it's a bit I, of a wide question. Yeah, yeah, um, because there's personal and then there, there's corporate, right? I kind of break them into two, like what I do for a personal branding strategy versus what I would do for a, a company. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed just with my own personal content is not to overthink it, to not think, like the window to Dubai. If you look at the metrics on that show, people watch three to five minutes. We create a 20-minute show, people watch three to five minutes, that's the average. We put in so much effort into editing and making it look perfect and beautiful. And the biggest thing that everybody knows is the opening, and it looks really cool, and that's all they know. <laughs> and they never watch it. I have people that have been on my show that have never watched their full episode. Because yeah. it's not, but it's the consistency that I've produced content that people have established me as, I don't want to go as far as saying a thought leader, but they recognize that I'm in that space. And I think the idea that, going back to what I was saying of like, there's three, three components, right? You're either providing a service or a product, you're either a content creator or you're creating a platform. I think it's getting people to put all three together. And I think one of the things that we did well is we didn't just pick people with huge followings. We interviewed people with 200 Instagram following. It wasn't about that. Um, it was a more about understanding that when you create something that provides other people a platform and you're not making it about you and you're just providing value and you're giving it away for free, even if you look at the conference, it's completely free. I'm providing a platform for other people to get on stage and speak. And then I'm creating content around that. And yeah, I do provide a service and product and it kind of comes together in one. Organically, business will come from that. And I can tell you, I've seen that happen because I did it already for the first six months with the window to Dubai. We've done about 33 episodes and I've gotten 15 clients in six months from just creating content. Yeah. Most people would say, yeah, but you're in the content space, so that makes sense. I feel like, yeah, I am, but I provide a service. And if you take whatever service you provide and build your content strategy around, okay, how do I create content? How do I promote my service or product? And how do I create a platform for other people at the same time through that process? You'll, I think you'll see the business come from it. Right. Um, and then you mentioned, obviously, there's a difference between a personal brand and a, a corporate brand. How does your strategy change if you're dealing with a corporate client? Um, corporate is the same concept. You know, giving, I think the misconception is that if you tell your secrets that people are going to go do it, I think most people don't understand that you can give everyone the ingredients to make something, but if they don't know how to cook it, it's still not going to taste good. So there's nothing wrong with telling people the knowledge you have about certain subjects and giving that away. And not necessarily thinking, well, if I tell them this secret that I know, everyone's going to go do it now. Most people will never go do it. Look how many personal trainers give out diet plans. No one ever follows that yeah. stuff. They give out, they list their workout plans. They give free videos. They show instructional. No one ever goes and does this stuff. But if you're consistently putting that out, people will see you as the leader. And you must be the authoritarian figure in the market for that specific subject if you're always producing content around that subject. So I think not being afraid to give away the secret sauce is probably the biggest thing for corporations, that they tend to want to hold on to that when they don't realize you can just Google it. It's, yeah. it's, it's not a secret anymore. Like anything you want to know about any industry, 
You can find it on Google. So might as well just get out and give it out, give it away and tell the secrets, tell how you do it. Like I had a tip, I had a series of videos, Marketing Tip Monday, where I just gave different marketing tips and I explained how I set up Facebook campaigns, why I do my hashtag strategy a certain way. And because most people are never going to go do it, they just know that I talked about it, therefore I must know more than them, yeah. even though they might know more than me. But because I put the video first, I must be the leader. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. It's like, even if you share your business secrets, 99% of people are not going to take action. And then even if you do that in your audience, there's a, uh, a percentage of people who are always going to be do-it-yourself. They'll never buy from you. So if you don't share the information, they'll go find it somewhere else and do it themselves. Yeah. But then there's this other group of people who they see you... Uh, um, putting out this information and say, oh, if he's sharing all of this stuff for free, imagine what he could give me if I pay him. Yeah. Or they don't have the time, they'd rather just pay you to do it for them. Like they know they can do it themselves, but they'd rather just, you know, delegate it out to you because they know that you're an expert and you can deliver, right? Yeah, yeah. I would say most clients that have hired us, the last thing that they say when they hire us is, look, we've had video guys come and tell us they can make great videos. We've had social media guys come in and tell they can do great social media. Why we picked you is, you're the only person that's ever put it all together and then given us a strategy. Whether it's going to work or not, we don't know, but you're the first person that ever just put the whole thing together and said, I'll do it A to Z for you, don't worry, just show up, we're going to turn the camera on, we're going to tell you what to say. Um, and I think that that's where we, I think the good part about what we did is we spent so long creating my content. And we got so good at doing videos every day, graphics, hashtag strategy, LinkedIn, we did all the platforms at once. To where when we took on a client, we just we had the system to put everybody through, and we just knew exactly what to do. And we just could map it out. Yeah, um, I think that you brought up. An, that's also another big important point that you brought up that you were able to experiment on yourself to find what works, and now you can offer that as a service to um, to your to potential clients. So, uh, let's talk about how you experimented. What was your sort of methodology experimenting with? Because you started off in uh, PPC, right? Now yeah. the content creation and content marketing is not really your uh, main yeah. you know, ball game, right? But then you became a content creator sort yeah. of expert. So what I had to do is I literally just started. I mean, it was, it, it literally was, I didn't have any video guys. I hired a freelance video guy and said, hey, I want to make a video about my business. Gave him some ideas. We just tried it. I said, hey, take a few professional pictures of me in between. So I look like, you know, not like photo shoot stuff, but just like I'm looking to the side, but I'm acting like I'm not taking a picture, but I'm taking a picture, you know? Take pictures in yeah. front of Lamborghini. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 didn't, I didn't go that route. More like a laptop, you know, just yeah. to make it look like I was a digital guy. Um, and so, I, I mean, I understood where I wanted to go with my content strategy because I understood what my business was and I understood what my end client looked like. So I did have that much mapped out, but as far as like what worked as far as graphics and pictures and text and the hashtag, it was literally just, I just started. Um, and I started with videos and cityscape photos where I just kind of looking off to the side, I write a motivational entrepreneurial quote, maybe I steal it from somewhere, I get, you know, I Google entrepreneurial quotes and I try to like rethink how to say the same thing, but more in my words. Um, that was kind of the initial start. Then I made a, a series of videos called The Story of Will, where I told my story from kindergarten to entrepreneurship, and we just edited it into like eight different videos. And that was my first real like, 
getting serious about video. Um, and my thought was, I felt like people didn't understand how much knowledge I had in business sales and marketing. And to establish myself as someone that could be treated or paid well in this market, I needed to tell that story. So people could say, wow, this guy started working when he was 10. He started doing sales when he was 15. He helped build a company in his 20s and took it from 5 million to 32 million. He built another company. Then he started a business. He started in the US. He expanded to Europe. Now he's in Dubai. So you're not a startup in Dubai anymore because they, they know the background, right? And so that's when I got more into video. But it was just organic. It was just like, okay, we should try this. Okay, we should try that. Um, and then it was like, okay, let's do a show. And like I said, the show was originally going to be me trying to get those Gary Vee moments. And then it became the window to Dubai where I tell other people's stories about their entrepreneurship and their journey. But it became that. It wasn't always that. I think the biggest thing people don't do when they're starting a business, is they just don't trust their gut. You know, you just sometimes you just start things and you don't know exactly where it's going to go. You just know this is the next step. And it leads you to the next step and it leads you to the next step. And I think as you get further along in your entrepreneur journey, it's a lot like being a hunter-gatherer. Sooner or later, you're just out in the wilderness by yourself and you just know where to go next. You can feel the next move. And I think that that's just something that you have to do it by doing it. Yeah. And I think that's the same with content creation. You just have to do it by doing it. You have to just start doing it consistently. And then, how, when you started creating the content, were you sort of, did, did you ever uh, produce and publish the content yourself, yourself or did you always, you know, have this video guy with you? So, yeah, I was, I was happy with the phone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I did Insta stories. That was probably where I started, like, developing the things I want to say in Insta stories because you could record 15 seconds, you could listen back, like, okay, I'll post that. So, that was probably my first real like okay what do i want to say what do i want to put out is my message as someone who's trying to be motivational entrepreneurial this type of stuff so insta stories was my kind of safe spot of where i would try to put my my voice out and what i wanted to say versus just a text and a graphic and a picture you know that type of stuff or video a curated video where we edited it and we were very clear that was the first time i just like recorded something and put it out right because it was also it was Only, it's only up for 24 hours, so it's not permanent. Um, you can listen back before you post it. So there's a lot of advantages to the Insta story kind of thing. And I think that that's also where you can really see who follows you. You know, you can, I mean, I know that I have three to 500 people that watch every Insta story that I post. I got 20 plus thousand followers, no, not a lot of people watch my Insta stories, but I know that every time I check my Insta story, there's about three to 500 people that watch every story all the way through. Mm. It's a, it's like a mission watching Insta stories. Is like once you follow like a bunch of people, there's like you know a thousand Insta stories that you're gonna watch, and then before you know it, you've spent like an hour and a half just yeah. watching Insta. Well, stories. I think there's just, I mean, there's certain people I watch their stories every time too. I, I I get what they're doing and I like it, and I feel like that's where Instagram has moved. You know, your your wall is more of an archive of what you want people to know you're about. Your Insta story is what's kind of really happening. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that you started working at 10. Uh, what was your first job? Uh, delivering flyers for a pizza shop. Okay. I was, uh, I grew up 
lower middle class in America. Family was pretty poor. Um, I got made fun of a lot. I had long red hair. I was picked on a bunch. And um, my parents uh, bought me a pair of generic Reebok shoes, but they looked so similar that like people made fun of me because of it because they were clearly not the ones, you know? Um, And I just didn't want to wear knockoff shoes and get made fun of because this is like, this is probably late... 80s, early 90s, you know, Jordans are coming alive, hip-hop, your gear, what you wore was representing who you were, and we were pretty poor, my parents couldn't afford it, they took me and bought me knockoff shoes, so I was just like, you know what, there was a pizza shop that had a little sign that said they're looking for someone to pass out their flyers, I just walked in and was like, hey man, can I pass out these flyers, and I think he paid me like $25 a week, every day after school, I'd just pass out flyers around the pizza shop and the houses, and I saved up money, bought my first pair of shoes, and that was like the moment that for the first time in my life, I felt in control of my life. Like I made money and I could control what I purchased. And I felt like people respected me when I went to school because I had, they knew that I was wearing fake shoes and I figured out how a way on my own to go get my own shoes. And I saw the shift in the way people saw me. And from that point forward, I pretty much always worked. Mm. Small jobs here and there. Uh, when I was 14, I used to sell the newspaper door to door, which that job wouldn't exist today, obviously, but it's, it's amazing to talk about because it, it dates you, you know, you realize how old you are at that moment. But I used to have a white van that would pick me up in front of my house. I would, uh, get dropped off on a street because it's like a suburban neighborhood. And so they just drop you off and you just go door to door selling the newspaper. And then you'd walk back up and then they'd pick you up and they'd drop you off on another street and you would just do this every day after school. Um, and then when I was 17, I used to work at an oil change place. And I was the guy that when you walked in, I sold you all the stuff you didn't need, but I was great at it. <laughs> like I was, I was legitimately at 17 years old, the top sales rep in like the Southwest part of the country, which is like California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, that's considered the Southwest. Um, and I was the number one sales rep in that region at 17 years old, yeah. selling people as you came in and you said, I need an oil change. I'd be like, oh, you need an air filter, you need a coolant flush, you need this, you need that. I had the highest ticket average. Um, so I think like, you know, by the time I was 18 years old, I had an eight year career at working, you know. Uh, you mentioned that, that feeling of control that you feel. Can you tell maybe people who are listening who are you know not entrepreneurs, maybe they're still in their nine to five, what does that feel like, that, that feeling of control, the ability to control the direction your life takes as an entrepreneur? I think it's, for me, it's okay, that, that early feeling of control was more of getting made fun of and ending that, you know, being able to say no, respect me, it was different. For me, the feeling that I enjoy the most as an entrepreneur is the freedom. And it's it's not always financial freedom, it's more the creative freedom. Because for me, I love the fact that if I have an idea, I get to try it. Nobody really gets to tell me no anymore. And when I was in my corporate life, I worked at a lot of companies that they would hire me, they'd give me a big salary because of my experience. Uh, they'd give me a great job title, and then I was not really allowed to do anything. And that's what drove me to become an entrepreneur, really, is because I just wanted to try my ideas. I just wanted to feel like I could do what I wanted when I wanted. And 
that drove me to become an entrepreneur. So for the for me, it's more about the feeling of freedom, just being able to do what I want. Like, I want to do a content creator conference. I did it. No one can tell me no. I paid for it. I put the money. I started. End of story. It may not make business sense to most people, but in my mind, it made sense, and I wanted to do it. For me, that's what I liked more, more than the control. Because sometimes you're not always in control. The market, you do this. I mean, you are. You really are. But day to day, things are going to happen as an entrepreneur that you cannot control. And you have to learn to take the punches and keep going. But more for me, it's more about freedom, for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned when you're creating the you know, conference, you have an idea and you can execute. It's more about you know, proof of concept, right? That I wanted to do this. I figured it out. I did it. You know, now I know if I want, I can organize and host events. You yeah. know? Same thing with starting your show, Window into Dubai. Want to start a show? Figured it out. I did it. You know? Yeah. Same thing with creating content. And then you have the ability to do all of these different things without, you know, you know, getting buy-in from somebody else, right? Yeah. Um, and then you're sort of in control about the direction that your business takes as well. Yeah. So. When you first started uh, in your SEO uh, plumbing thing, you wanted to add more value to uh, your clients. So you got SEO guys in India and you got uh, website designers as well. And that was more of a conscious choice as opposed to a necessity. Yeah. When did it become necessary for you as an entrepreneur to actually build out a team where I, could, I can't progress beyond this point? I need to build a team up. That business I could have kept always the way it was running. It was more of when I went to Europe and I got into lead generation and CPA. I needed programmers because it was a little more complex. Um, and the guys in India, going back to, and, and this is, I hope this doesn't sound the most negative way because I don't want it to come out this way, but it's, it's kind of what I compete against here as a digital marketing company. You have a lot of companies that can do exactly what you tell them to do, but they cannot give any feedback or creativity to the, to the project. That was the group in India, right? When I did SEO, they could execute X SEO campaign, but if you were to tell them, hey, let's come up with a strategy on this, they're like, no, tell me what you want me to do. So that when I got to that stage where I had to be creative and think of how to generate business, for clients is when I started having to hire a team of people that I could work with every day and I could work with their minds and like, let's think this through, let's think about that. Even like with this team here in Dubai, we've gotten to the point where the team can say, hey, I think we should try this to me, right? It's not just me guiding everything now. It's gotten to the point to where the video guys can say, I think we should try this shot. I think we should try this edit. I think we should add this. The graphic guy can say, I think it looks better like this. Let's do this. So when you get into the creative space, you need more. When it's the X's and O's of digital marketing campaigns, you can work with a group that's outsourced that's just executing X campaign. But when it gets into the creative, you, you kind of have to have a team. All right, okay. So your team right now is able to give you strategic ideas and creative ideas on the direction of uh, the work that you do. What does it take as a as a CEO or a business owner to manage a team like this, where it's not you being sort of like a like a um, a maestro of an orchestra? It's more 
you're like a, like a raiding party and everybody's got their own little roles, but at the same time, they all con- contribute to the final outcome. What are the, you know, mindset features or psychological features, whatever you want to talk about that it takes as an entrepreneur to manage a team in this way? Well, I think every project, starting with my project, right? Everyone has touched every component of what they're doing. And I think that I share a lot of my thought process in why we're doing things. Um, it's not like I come up with the secret sauce, cook it, and then tell them, go do it. We're, we're working on it in real time together. We sit down, we create a playbook for our clients, right? So we sit down and we go post by post and say, this is what we're going to say. This is the graphic we're going to use. This is the color scheme we're going to use. This is the hashtag strategy we're going to use. And each, the video guys, the graphic guys, the content writer, the project manager, we're all in a room, literally on this table, sitting around talking about it. So when you do that enough times with enough clients, people start to think, see how you think, and then they can start to add value. So I think you got to make people a part of the creative process. You can't just you know go in a quiet room, make it, and then tell everybody, okay, go post this. You, you have to include them from A to Z, what you're doing, how you're doing it, what you're thinking, why you're thinking. And then be willing to let people give you feedback because you might have missed something, you know? I do run an international marketing company, so sometimes I can miss something that someone might be like, hey, next Thursday we should actually be posting this and I think we should switch this. And you have to be willing to accept that that person might be right. Mm. How did your hiring decisions work? Uh, who, who was the first hire? Was it the freelance video guy or? Yeah. For here, for this office, yeah, yeah. And then, is it are your decisions based on um, immediate necessity, or are you hiring based on your plan for the future, where you want your business to be, like a six months to a year from now? How does that work? Well, with that, I mean, when we look at the way, let's go back and say, in in March, we started doing Window to Dubai. Mm-hmm. I was staffed up for where I'm at today. Yeah but I wasn't generating the revenue for those six months to, to justify the staff that we had. We had an accounting person and no money to account for. You know what I mean? <laughs> there was no real revenue to account for, but somebody was still doing invoices every day and you know, giving me a P&L with nothing in it, you know? Um, we had a, a content writer, a graphic designer, and a video guy, even though we were just working on my stuff because I understood when the day that the clientele started to pour in, I needed to be ready to execute that day. So we were investing for a solid five to six months before we saw something really kick in. Um, We were picking up clients here and there, but it wasn't until after summer when everybody came back is when the lights turned on and we were like, we were ready to go, but we were ready. Um, And we were consistently producing content that entire time as we waited. Hmm. And how were you investing? Were you investing your own uh, or your own money to keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of solopreneurs might not have the background that you have, right? You have a fairly long uh, career in you know doing your own entrepreneurship thing, and I'm sure you had uh, quite a nest egg built up for you in Katie, like for your business. No, budget. I really didn't, man. You did it when I when I quit my job. I had twenty thousand dollars in the bank, and I just decided. Because, okay, I, I had maxed out my corporate life. I made $10,000 a month in the U.S., which is not great. After you pay taxes, maybe you're making six. Mm. In California, as a single male, no kids, 
You're not making, they, they tax you, you know, so you're making six. By the time you drive a nice car, you have a nice apartment, you have a beautiful girlfriend, you're broke. Mm. That was my life. And I, I, it was pretty much like a midlife crisis for me of like, I can't continue to live this life. I've maxed out where I'm going to go as a corporate person. And there was a fear of, well, what if I don't make enough? Because I'm used to making this amount of money. But I just couldn't handle that I was technically successful, but I felt broke. And I was going to a job where I had a fancy title and I was really important, but I wasn't allowed to do anything. And I was just kind of living a mundane life. And I, would, I just decided I would rather lose it all and start over than to continue to live what I was living. And I just went for it. And I just quit my job and started a digital marketing company and said, I literally watched YouTube videos on how to build pay-per-click campaigns and started telling people I had a digital marketing company and I could do pay-per-click mm. with $20,000 in the bank mm. and just started. Yeah. And for eight marketing, uh, what, what did you use to fund the business in those six months? Did you use uh, credit or were you using your savings? Um, I just, uh, what I did I think that was smart is I, number one, always charge my clients prepayment. And everything that I did is I went and got four or five clients right away. And I was losing money. And then I got up to a 10 and then I was breaking even. And it's when I got to 10 and I was breaking even, it was like, how do I get these guys to pay me more, which is how the SEO came in. So I got, I mean, within three months I was profitable. Um, given I had 22 years of business development, sales, marketing experience. So I knew what to do. I knew how to do it. And I stuck to the industry that I knew the most about. So when I met with someone, I knew exactly what they needed. I wasn't venturing into verticals of marketing that I didn't understand, that I had to try it, I had to test it. Like I spoke their language. I knew what they needed. And my cost point of $500 a month was so low, they weren't taking a risk by giving me a shot. Because the way I ran the campaign is, I put their credit card on file with Google. So they just had $500 a month, and then they spent with Google, and they could see everything. So it's not like it was a reach. It was an easy sale. And given my background and my experience and my resume, it was it was kind of a no-brainer, really. So I, I was profitable within the first three months. Yeah, and that was for the uh, PPC for the yeah. plumbing. What about for eight marketing? How did you how did you run run it? Uh, given that you built the team first for the well, that was team. that was eight marketing. I was called eight marketing. I started oh, it was with that, eight it was eight marketing five years. It's always been eight marketing. Okay. So I called the company eight marketing back then. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And then how long ago was the uh, the plumbing thing? Five years ago. Five years. Uh, and when did you come to Dubai? July of last year. July of last year. Um, so how, tell me how, you know, let's go through, you know, from the day you got here and, you know, opened up your free zone company. What was the journey? How did you, uh, what were you using? Were you using your savings to fund the business? How, how did you go about the business development, what were your first clients? Yeah, well, I mean, I built a profitable business in the U.S., yes. so I had cash flow from that. Yes. I built a profitable business in Europe now, mm -hmm. I had cash flow from that, so I was funding it from that cash flow. Mm. So you were able to leverage your other businesses or yeah. your other uh, revenue streams to fund this business over yeah. here? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> after you got here, Maybe this will be focused more on entrepreneurs in, in Dubai. 
So you're not you're not native to Dubai. You got here and you opened up the free zone. Obviously, you you had uh, entrepreneurship experience before, so you know how to start and run a business. What about for somebody who maybe they they are in your they are in your position that you were in as a corporate person, okay, and they want to make that switch? What is the what is the mindset shift that's necessary? What do they need to do here? Uh, like, can you give them some advice on making that switch from going from corporate to starting your own thing? Go all in. Take the leap of faith. Don't look back. Because if you do a side hustle, first of all, I tried to do side hustles. I tried to be the corporate guy and start something on the side. What always happens is sooner or later, you start to mess up at your job. Your boss starts to notice it. You get afraid that you're going to lose the source of income and you immediately go back to your job. And then what happens is you start to convince yourself you're not meant to be an entrepreneur because you keep starting and stopping, starting and stopping. Second is I compare entrepreneurship to being hunter-gatherer, right? You just got to go out in the wilderness and learn how to survive. And if you fail, you just go back to work for someone. It's not like you die. It's not like you starve to death in the wilderness. You just get a job again but you will be far more successful if you don't have a plan B. If you have a plan B as an entrepreneur, because it's hard, it's stressful. You know, when you don't have enough money to pay for everything and you're the guy, it's hard, it keeps you up at night. You have to be all in on being an entrepreneur or you will never make it. So I would just say, quit your job, go all in, take the risk. And if you're not willing to invest your own money, your idea is not that good. If you don't believe in your idea enough that you're willing to lose your money in the process, your idea is not as good as you think it is. Mm. If you're waiting around for someone else to fund you and give you the money, that means you don't believe enough in your own stuff. I wouldn't do it. I would, I would, then you're just not ready. Stick it out, save your money, live below your means, keep stacking up as much money as you can so you can take the leap of faith, but wait till you can take that leap of faith. Mm. All right, so there's two points that we can branch off from there. The first point is, you know, most people are sort of wired for security. They're sort of risk averse, so they're, they've, you know, they've been, they're sort of used to getting that paycheck every single month. Yeah. How does your mindset need to change if you're interested in doing your own thing? How does your mindset need to change to actually do that go all in? You're just gonna have to do it. And that, that, that was my biggest fear. My biggest fear was for a decade of my life, I was making $10,000 a year salary. How do I break out of that? And I had a good life, but I didn't have a great life. And I knew that I was talented enough to do this. It's just taking that leap of faith and going all in. And I can tell you, I've made way more money. I mean, that the money that I was making, it doesn't even exist. I couldn't even learn how to survive on that money if I had to live off $10,000 a month, realistically, and that's not to, to brag, but the amount of money that I've made over the last five years eclipses that, but I had to give that up in hopes that it would be great one day. Now, part of it is I had a lot of experience. I, I had 22 years of real life experience by the time I took the leap of faith, but I think that's also something that people misjudged because entrepreneurship has become so popular that 20 year olds and 22 year olds think they're going to create the next Facebook and it's not like they can't, but the majority of entrepreneurs are probably going to spend a decade or two in corporate life and then make the jump. There's nothing that's going to replace that real life experience. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that always sort of helps because once you have that, once you've lived life for a while, it's much easier for you to, you know, realize, okay, what's the worst, like, what's the worst that could happen? Whereas when you're sort of young, like, you might have that sort of youthful feeling of invincibility, but you don't know, right? You're still well, I think also it, it held me back. I was afraid to look stupid. I was afraid to look like a failure. I was afraid that I wouldn't be considered successful anymore. So I held on to the image of success, even though I was broke and I was living month to month, but I had a nice car, I had a nice apartment. It looked successful on the outside, but I wasn't living a great life. When I finally was willing to give all that up and go for it and live below my means, and I'll tell you, it's, it's amazing what you're truly capable of when you have no other choice. It, I, I think that people overall, when, you, when you're forced to do something, you can do so much more than you realize until you have to do it. You know, that's why people, they don't study and then they cram for a test when they finally have to do it and then they pass, right? People do this all the time. And for me, it was like that. Like once I had the final opportunity to do it, I never looked back. Yeah. And then the, the second point you brought up is that, okay, if you're not willing to invest your own money, your idea isn't that good. I, have, I, I don't know if, if this is the case with you, but I have noticed in Dubai in sort of the startup scene. Yeah. Yeah. They're all sort of working on their ideas because it's like cool to be a startup now, but then really they're waiting around for somebody to give them money. It's a waste. I, 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 I don't understand that world. I, I started my own business with my own money. And I think that, first of all, if you start your business with your own money, you're, very, you're almost not gonna wanna let someone else come in. Because once you learn how to make money with your money, the last thing you want to do is let someone give you 10 grand and now they own 50% of your business. You're not going to do that because you already know how to make money. And the next idea that I have, I'm not bringing someone in because they got 10 or $20,000 to throw my way. No, I'll figure it out myself. But if you start from a point of I got an idea and I'm going to wait for someone to give me money, by the time you get that money, someone's already done that idea. You will also, if you really want to get venture capital, if you're actually doing the idea, your leverage in a negotiation with a venture capitalist is way greater than if you're just telling me of an idea. Because at the end of the day, they don't know, can you execute? But if you're executing that idea, the ability to get money at that point is much easier. And I just think that, I just truly believe that if you don't put your own money into something, you don't value it. And if you don't value it, why would I give you money for your idea if you don't even value it? You know, I think it's psychological. If you really believe in something, you're going to put your money, your heart, your soul, every your time. If you're doing that and it's profitable, you're not going to want money from someone else. Yeah. And it's also like, uh, you know, how many, how many customers have you already gone out and gotten just hand to hand, you know? Yeah. Are you like, are, are people actually resonating with your idea? Are people actually using your concept or app or whatever? Well, you also know? find out a lot of times that what you thought was going to work and what actually works are two very different things. Sometimes you find out you're way overpriced. I found out I was way underpriced for the market once I got going and that I was just giving my services away and that I could charge double, triple, quadruple what I was charging. But I figured that out because I was doing it every day. I was selling, I was meeting with clients the interaction and the business evolved as I started doing it. And I think too many people, you know, come up with a business plan, they come up with a strategy, they come up with a budget, they do all this stuff and they've never done one of them yet. I would, I, I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. Like 
the content creator conference. I went and put money down on a venue and even Sana came to me and was like, why'd you pick that venue? I was like, I don't know, I just did. What, what, why'd you pick that day? I don't know. It's because now I have to do it. I'm this type of person though. I have this type of personality. I would rather pick a date and start and figure it out on the way rather than write a business model and never start. Yeah, it's sort of like a, a ready fire aim. Yeah. Or uh, you know, backing yourself into a corner, or uh, they call it burning your boats, right? Yeah. Where you have no choice other than to win. You win or you die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are some of the challenges that you're facing after you got to Dubai as an entrepreneur? Just understanding the the processes. I think that's the hardest thing about Dubai, especially coming from the U.S. When you're a U.S. citizen, you don't have to think about a visa. You don't have to get approval for a bank account. These little things, you know, you don't need an NOC letter for anything. You don't need visas to hire people. Just the complexity of it. Um, I think that's the, the challenge for most entrepreneurs navigating in Dubai. Is just un and understanding the difference between free zone and mainland. Free zone seems like a better deal in the beginning, but long term it's usually not if you really plan to do business in Dubai. If you really want to be in the market, you need to be a mainland. You need to have an office. People need to see this because free zones come and go and they know that. One of the first questions when you meet a client is where's your office? Because they know based on what you say next, what kind of company you are. And they know, are you here to stay or are you figuring it out? And when you say you're in Business Bay office, Silver Tower, blah, blah, you can come meet me, suddenly the credibility factor goes up. And you can only know that by being in the market. Yeah. Um so that's more of the sort of regulatory challenges. That I think that's, I think for an expat, that's the big thing. Understanding the, the, the laws behind how it's run, understanding how it flows and understanding that things take longer. And that's, you, there's nothing you can do. There's no one you can yell at enough that's going to make it go any faster. Trust me. I've yelled at them all. <laughs> <laughs> I've yelled at every person that I've come in contact with to move things faster than it doesn't. Yeah. And, and uh, did you face any challenges adjusting to uh, this particular market, the way business is done here? The only thing that was weird for me is I had a guy pay me once. He waited 60 days to pay me. So he was 60 days late. And then he wrote me a check for 30 days later. Yeah. And I didn't know. And I went and deposited it. And every day I was like, man, why isn't this check going through? Because in America, you can't, it's illegal to write a post-dated check. If you, have, if you don't write the check for that day and I go deposit it and you don't have funds, that's illegal, right? Here, a post-dated check is the way everything is done, which is totally abnormal for me as an American. That nobody pays with a credit card. In America, all my clients were on an automatic charge on a credit card. Here, no one will ever do that. Um, so there's differences, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I do for my clients, and I'm not sure if this will even work over here because most of my clients are international, is, I get them to pay me 100% upfront, you know, and that is, you know, yeah, that's thousands how do, of yeah. dollars, right? So over here, it's like, you know, we need 60 days credit or 90 days credit. I'll never do that. <laughs> I'll never get paid. I'm not going to chase money. I just, I'm not, I'm not that way. I just won't do it. You either pay me, because if I have to create your content, like the way we sell our, our, our packages is we say, look, for the first 30 days, we're not even going to post anything. Because I got to create video, graphics, strategy. I got to spend one month figuring you out before I can even post the first thing. And so this month, I work on everything for you. You're paying me for that. Like, I'm not doing that for free. I'm not chasing you for a payment. 
of 10,000 dirhams, you know? Like, you give me that money, I do the work, I post the next month, the next month, I work on the next month, and I'm always staying out ahead, and I require a 30-day cancellation. I don't, I don't mess around. That's one thing that I've learned in business is that you're better off working with a smaller clientele or I would say mid clientele, especially in mine, B2B. Too small, they just struggle to pay. Too big, they just don't care. It's that medium range where your services are valuable enough, they make enough money that they can afford you, they're not a stretch to pay you, they've got some cash flow, and they see value in what you're doing. Those are kind of my niche clients that work the best, and they understand I need to be paid. And I always say, look, I live in, we live in a country where I have to prepay three months to a year of rent. You can prepay one month of marketing. Like, yeah. You know, this is the market. Welcome to it. We all live in it. I'm not changing my business model for one client, you know. Yeah. I think that's that's important also as an entrepreneur or any kind of entrepreneur in general is that, you know, you set your boundaries very clearly. And it's also like you got into entrepreneurship to have the freedom to run your business the way you want, right? Yeah. So you should be designing your business around the way you want to live your life and the way you want to run your business. Now, if you allow your prospects or your potential clients to dictate the way you run your life and your business, what is the point of you know being an entrepreneur? You just traded one boss for several bosses. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, and I just think that you you have to know how to run a profitable business. At the end of the day, the creativity, everything you do, if you're not running a profitable business, you won't last. And I think that that's one thing that my corporate life taught me is I worked for a lot of companies, like the company that I took from 2.4 to 7.2 in sales, right? They sat me down and said, but we didn't make any more money. Good for you, you did a great job, it looks really great on the board, but we're not making any more money here, and here's why. And I started to understand that sometimes an increase in revenue doesn't mean you're more profitable if you can't keep up with the output. You know what I mean? If you're not able to deliver or you're just creating a backlog of work and you're not actually executing in real time. So there's, there's that balance. And then there becomes a balance in growth and revenue and costs. You know, you, you have to learn that. That's, that's something that you just have to learn as you go. Mm. So it's like, a, it's not how much you can make, it's how much you get to keep, right? Well, it's that, but it's just, it's, it's more understanding how to develop a pricing model. A lot of people will take their cost and just double it and be like, that's profit. For me, it's a capacity issue, right? I only have so many video guys. I only have so many graphic guys. I only have so many content guys. How much revenue per chair do I need to make sure that I'm profitable per month? So am I better off with five clients at 20,000 dirhams? Or am I better off at 20 clients at 5,000 dirhams? Can I keep up with the output at that 5,000? Yeah, I got a bunch of them, but can I actually execute? Or am I better off holding off for the more expensive clients and giving them more quality and giving them more value. So you have to find that balance. And I think that when you start, you should focus on just getting profitable or break even. And then once you're at that stage, you have to look at what's your capacity and what can you really scale to with the team that you have before you start adding more costs. And that's what I think we did well in this, in this office is we got ourselves to a break even and we said, okay, we're here. Now we're not gonna take clients at this number anymore. Those guys will stay at that number, but we're not taking any more at this number. This is our number. And if we're not getting this, we'd rather say no because it's a capacity issue at this point. Mm. So that's how we, we scaled it. 
Um, as you add uh, more staff members or grow your team, you're, you're adding complexity to your business, right? So how do you balance that, you know, agility that the solopreneur has uh, versus the need to uh, delegate your service, delegate your, you know, the, the different tasks in your business where the business will continue to run if you're not there? Because yeah. sort of as a solopreneur, that's sort of like the most agile model there is, right? You're able to move fast. You're the only uh, bottleneck, but there's a drawback there that if you stop working, your business stops working. Yeah. So how do you how do you balance the two as an entrepreneur yourself? Um, you, you're just gonna have to give. You're gonna have to let people fail. You know, you're gonna have to let people make mistakes, um, and you just you have to be willing to give up some level of control sometimes. This is really what it comes down to is, you know, the idea that you're an entrepreneur doesn't mean that you have to control every aspect of your business. You have to be aware of what's going on. You have to understand on a macro level what's happening, but the day-to-day in and out detail of everything, if you get caught up in managing that, you'll never grow. You have to be focused on the bigger picture um, and you have to let other people worry about the day-to-day stuff. Yeah. When, let me just uh, sort of gather my train of thought here. Can you grab me a water? You want a water? Uh, I'm, yeah, sure. Thank you. So uh, I think we're almost done. I thought it was going to be a lot longer, but I think we're, you know, we covered quite a bit of ground <laughs> quite fast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what does it take, just in your mind, to be successful? Or let's, let's word it differently. What does success mean to you as an entrepreneur? Freedom. I, when I imagined the life that I wanted to live is I wanted to make enough money in my own business that I could do what I want, when I want, without the worry of money. And five years ago, when I started my business, I lived that life for five consecutive years. My first year, I did 160000 in revenue solopreneur, I already lived the life I wanted. Last year we did two million in revenue, still living the life, there's no difference. The only difference is the revenue number and and, and the clients and that, but I wanted to live a life where if I want to take a trip, I can go. Digital marketing company gave me that freedom. I could take my laptop and cell phone, I could still do everything I needed to do. Even this office, I could communicate through Telegram, WhatsApp, Skype, email, we're digital. So just the company structure automatically gave me that. The concept of money, I think that it's different when you're in business for yourself. You spend money differently and you look at money very differently than when you're an employee. When you're an employee, you get 10,000 in a month and you say, this is my 10,000 to spend on my stuff. When I get $10,000, I don't even think about what I'm gonna buy with it. I think about desks, computers, cameras, laptops, employees, visas, website, you you just think very differently about money. And suddenly there's a disconnection between your personal side of what's for you and you're more focused on building something. So for me, that it's the freedom to do this, the freedom to create stuff, the freedom to do what I want when I want without the worry of money. To me, once I achieved that, it was success for me. 
And then is that freedom sort of your definition of happiness as well? For yeah. you personally? Oh, yeah. How does your uh, your life as an entrepreneur intersect with your you know personal life? Um, I, I tend to be a loner by nature, um, so I'm not. I have to force myself to go network and like meet people and get out there. Um, but I, I feel like it doesn't it doesn't have an effect. Um, it's it's more of you just tend to not. You just don't waste time with people that are not bringing value to your life in some way. You don't hang out. I don't hang out with like friends and go to a club and you know do that stuff because I just don't have time. And mentally, when I'm finally done, I don't. Ha- I want to unwind. I want to relax. You know. Uh, so yeah, I think it changes your personal life in that way because you're just so focused on the next thing, what you're doing, what you're building. And so when you finally get downtime, you just want to relax. You know, you just want to turn off the brain and just relax. You you married or you have a girlfriend? Um, I do have a girlfriend, yeah. How does your uh, work affect that? Is there like a... No, I, I mean, I, I think you have... I, I think that... I mean, this is just kind of a general thing. I think most women are pretty understanding of a guy who is committed to his business and his work. As long as you're not ignoring her and, you know, somehow not giving her anything um, in return, I think most women understand that. I think most women respect it and tend to be more attracted to someone that's, I don't feel like it's ever affected me in that, in that part of my life. Yeah. And maybe you sort of attract those people who, you know, are down with that journey, right? They, yeah, they yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I just think it's more of, I, I think it just in general, if you just always do what you want to do in life, and you really follow your intuition, you really follow your gut, you really just live your life on your terms, people will be naturally attracted to that. I don't find it's hard to meet women and date in general with my lifestyle. Um, and I, I think that in general, you, you, you just don't have to worry about that part. It's more like you have to find the right people to let in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So as, you know, as long as you're focused on your mission, other stuff tends people to people will follow you. People will naturally gravitate to you. Yeah. How do you how do you stay in at the at sort of at the top of your game as an entrepreneur, as a person, whatever? I, I think it's a combination of you know I I spent twenty two plus years waiting for this moment. You know I worked for someone. I helped I helped build a lot of businesses. I helped make a lot of people a lot of money before I got here. So I've been waiting to finally do this. That's one thing. Um, I also think that one of the secrets to my success has been that I've been an immigrant in other countries. As an American, it's funny to think about that because most people want to go to America, but I think one of the greatest things I did was leave the U.S. because I'm only here for business. I'm not here to make friends and let's go party and let's hang out at the beach on the weekends. I'm here for business. So I can relate to the person wanting to go to America to build a better life because it's, I left America to, to build a better life, which is kind of a funny dynamic. But you just naturally focus more when you're an expat in another country. And you're, you specifically move there to open a business. Your focus is so much greater than if I lived in America, I was making some money, my friends wanted to hang out. Oh, okay. You, you just viewed life different. So I think one of the advantages that I've had is that I've actually left America and opened businesses in other countries because 24-7, seven days a week, I'm living that life. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very important point. It's like even your being an expat is part of the mission, right? Yeah, I, I think it's a huge advantage. I think it's 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 missed. I think it's why so many people move to America and make huge lives of themselves because they go there just for that. They didn't go for the lifestyle or or the party. They came to make a better life, and they finally got their chance. And so for me, I waited twenty plus years to have my chance. And when I got to another country, I was there for that. That's it. I wasn't there to hang out and meet people and date. I was there to make money. Yeah. Uh, so I think this will be the last question. You're a you're a digital marketer, content creator. What's working right now in the digital marketing space, and what do you think is going to be working six to six months to a year from now? Um, I think right now, um, I think in this market, people still sleep on Google. I think people don't understand that if you provide a service you should be still running Google. I think people have given up on that and gone all in on social. It's kind of like a pendulum, you know? I think people are gonna come back to Google and understand that being, if people are searching for you, it's, you know, it's intent versus interest, right? Social is an interest-based marketing strategy. Google is an intent, I intend to do something. So I think people are gonna move back towards Google. I think that you're gonna see a lot more podcasts I think that what I've learned in just my own journey on YouTube is people don't like to watch long-form video, but people will listen to a podcast. So I think podcasts are going to be bigger. Yeah. And in terms of uh, the social media content or just the uh, content in general that you produce, what is, what's working right now? Is it the, you know, the, the motivational quote type stuff? Is it the short videos? Is it stories. high it's production? Stories. I, I yeah. think that... What I've seen is my real following is in Insta Stories. Insta Stories. People like your, you know, people like your stuff because they feel like they should. Maybe they comment, but what where I see is that people that watch my stories, those are my followers. Those are the people really following. Yeah, have you been dabbling with IGTV at all? I stopped. Um, I think until it's searchable, it's a waste of time for me personally. Until you can search what you want to watch, it's a waste. Of time. And. It's like there's just so much content to consume right now. You feel like people are just like, you know, whatever at this point. Because like we talked about the Insta stories, it's like you'll spend like almost like 30 minutes and you don't even know it's gone by. Yeah. But then you've got your feed, all right? And then you've got the IGTV as well. Are people just going to be like, like, you know, fuck it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't see it happen anytime soon, but obviously there's always something around the corner that disrupts something that you never know about. But I think right now with just in general, people on their phones consuming, I think people do it out of boredom. So I think that, you know, that goes back to don't overthink your content so much because yeah, you may have a following, but it doesn't mean like they're real fans. And I think there's a confusion with that sometimes. But if you're delivering something valuable and people watch it, it's good, you know? It, it's built a business for me, so I'm not gonna abandon it anytime soon. Yeah, and so now you, you, actually, you actually produce uh, you know the content for your clients and you've got a team around that does the content for you what do you think works better maybe for a personal brand or a corporate do you think that the high production value stuff is working or is it the more grimy personal you know pull your smartphone out what's working better I think somewhere in between that 
I think the I think you can look. I, I think that there's like if I wouldn't do like cell phone videos on my LinkedIn page, my Insta story, sure. Um, I think you can over curate a video to where it's full production, you know. And I think that it's more about consistency. It's about do you have enough knowledge in your specific subject to produce content every day? And if you do, you will show yourself as the leader. And I think that that's what people got to understand is so many people get caught up in the one video and making it perfect versus pick your industry and be the leader and produce so much content that when someone goes and checks you, the credibility factor of you must know what you're talking about is what you're trying to build. I think that that's the miss right now. Everyone's focused on this one great video that's going to go viral versus that's so hard to do and it's sometimes just by chance that that's going to happen versus you just list out all the subjects in your industry and you just say, I'm going to create a video about everything. So that way when I meet with a client and I say, here you go, that person can see you've been talking about this stuff that you're selling me for so long, you must be an expert at it. Yeah, I've actually written about this on my uh, to my email is I called it Vayner niching. So you be the you become the Gary V of your thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and basically just blanket like carpet bomb the content. Yeah. This is yeah. better. And it's more about, you know, just daily stuff. Yeah, every day whatever the quality, maybe good quality is is better, but then it's more about showing up every single day, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, William. Awesome. Thank you so Thank much you. for your time. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, That's we cool. should do this more often. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. All right.